who, if you don't know, is the lead singer of Soundgarden. He's the lead singer of Audio Slave. He also has a successful solo career. Um, of course, most people know Chris Cornell, though, as the lead singer of Soundgarden in the waves of the grunge movement. He was one of the founding bands. Oh, he was also in, uh, was it Hair of the Dog? I think it was Hair of the Dog that did um, a song called Hunger Strike. Temple of the Dog. Oh, Temple of the Dog. Thank you. I mostly knew him from Audio Slave as opposed to Soundgarden, which is interesting because I think most people really know him from Soundgarden. But I knew him from Audio Slave. So was he doing both projects at once? Or no. was it like so one So Soundgarden had broken other? up for a while. Okay. And while Soundgarden had broken up, he was doing solo stuff. And then when Rage Against the Machine broke up and by broke up, Zach was a jackass and left the band. The rest of Rage Against the Machine still wanted to play, but they needed a singer. And right. so Chris joined them and they became Audio Slave because they weren't going to just continue to be Rage Against the Machine. They had to be something different. Gotcha. Um, also, note, worked with Alice Cooper a lot. Oh, I'm unsurprised by that as well. I mean, Alice Cooper is one of the oldest and more, most experienced in the rock and heavy metal He gets rock. around. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's been doing this a long time. Um, but yeah, so um, I brought this album mostly because I grew up listening to Chris Cornell on his various projects, and I thought, well, he has a solo album. It must be similar to the heavier stuff he's been doing with those other bands, because Audio Slave was fairly heavy, and of course, so was Soundgarden. Um, and uh, nope. <laughs> no. Um, just just for the record, favorite tracks by Soundgarden were um, Spoon Man and uh, My Way. Spoon Man. Yep, that's, that's them. <laughs> um, and oh, it's My Wave, not My Way. Um, so yeah, clearly I have a love for this band. I've been listening to them for a long time, though I didn't check out Soundgarden's newest record, which came out, I think, in 2011. Yeah, after their reunion back yeah, in 2010. they got back together. Um, and they're still together now, as far as I know. I don't think they've broken up again. They, this is just a solo project he released. Anyway, on to the album. Enough of me rambling. Chris Cornell, Higher Truth, is the name of the album. and Got a big old mountain on the front. I just want to point out that mountain. It's a so big old mountain. We don't talk about it enough, but album artwork is, I feel like something we often forget to bring up because nobody has physical albums anymore but a lot of work goes into these album covers I feel like for some of them and this one has kind of like a logo-ish kind of styling where it's a circular logo in the middle of an album with and the mountain and a little rocket it. ship at the bottom of yeah. the mountain which that is points up directly at the peak of the mountain where the there's sort of a sun yeah. Yeah. and so higher ground I mean it's being symbolized on this album cover for sure higher truth something bigger higher ground higher truth yeah, yeah. something to grow and aspire to anyway um, track one is called Nearly Forgot My Broken Heart, and oh. from the minute the song starts, we have an acoustic guitar, which I was not expecting, though he's done acoustic well, tracks before. It was a banjo, before. I think. Oh, was it a banjo? Very it was picky. a banjo. Yeah, the picky... The finger picky, so it could have been a... It probably was a banjo. You're it didn't right. have the same sort of reverb you'd expect with a normal acoustic guitar. That sort of change, and when you couple it with the immediate voice vocal recognition I got from it... I kind of already saw it leaning in this album just from the first 30 seconds. Because it paints sort of an old-timey feel. But the funny thing is it's not really mixed in that style. It's not mixed in the sort of faux record-scratching manner that you'd expect from, from the type of song that this is and, and the techniques he's using. Instead, I, I'm kind of glad for it because that's, that's a, a mixing style that I think I'm growing a little personally tired of. I mean, after all, it does sort of... It's a little disingenuous. That would present you as something other than what you are, other than recording in an extremely modern 21st century uh, recording studio, and he is, and it is exactly that. It's very crisp, very clean, but it's got this, like, almost a, a campfire air to it. Uh, much of this album has that you you feel like you're somewhere in the Midwest or maybe even deeper in the West. You don't really feel like you're around a lot of people. You feel like it's just him and his and his woes as... being expressed. 
As it goes into the second verse, though, there is that interjection of the bass, which sounds a little more along the soulful side. Not soul music, but that mourning kind of a bass being interspersed between everything else. Yeah. It starts undergoing a fairly predictable uh, build from this point onward with the introduction of the instruments. I'll give it this. For the... For the beginning of the album here, I don't think it was really that predictable for me, because after all, it does, in my case, and I think in Matt's case, it really did stem from the fact that, well, we know Soundgarden, we know Audio Slave, and we know him a little bit, so this was actually a little bit, I think, left field for him. I think it was uh, not the most predictable from what you'd expect from Chris Car- Cornell. Now, as to the style of music, maybe, but there's, there's some perks to it. Like, for instance, the way the banjo sort of kicks it up, the just sort of rocks back and forth on the fifth there uh, between D and A. It's just for the setup. It really soothes you. And then by the time his vocals step in, his vocals are, are contrasted so so harshly because he's got this power behind it, which I feel I could only compare. And uh, no offense to any uh, Chris Cornell fans, or or maybe it's a compliment. I don't know, but it really comes across to me like like Bruce Springsteen in certain areas because of just the raw force. It seems to almost take control. That the spotlight is it's aimed like solely at the vocalist, and everything else is just kind of swirling around it. It's almost secondary. But that said, I mean, for me, as a fan of Chris Cornell, his vocals are what I'm coming here for. I mean, I've always loved the instrumentation in a lot of those other band songs, too. But when I think about anything Chris Cornell has fronted, he's a frontman, and his lyrics and his vocals are what I come to the show for. And so this was no different. I mean, from the minute he starts singing, you're getting that power that he's always had. He can hit highs, he can hit lows within his kind of style. So it's like when a frontman goes solo, you expect even more of a spotlight, a brighter spotlight. But on top of that, you're not wrong about the Bruce Springsteen comparison, I feel, but I think that's brought out more by the style of music. The vocals aren't that different from he, what he's done in both Audio Slave and, and, and um, Soundgarden, but definitely the style of music lends more to a classic rock or light rock side of Bruce Springsteen, which we've heard before. Yeah, and then if you just take it in of itself, I think it's, it's, it's very expressive. He's, he's definitely got a range. He, he, he likes to sit in a certain range, but when he wants to belt it out, he has no problem doing it. And there's a lot of emotion behind it. I mean, even just in the lyrics here, well, and I nearly forgot my broken heart. It's taken me miles away from the memory of how we broke apart, and here we go round and round again. It's the kind of, like, we get this theme a lot in a lot of albums. Being caught in a loop, sort of watching the same problems occur, and it has that sort of ruminative quality to it. But it's, it's borne out less in the way we have seen recently, where there's a lot more instrumentation, a lot more flourishes, and said this kind of pared it all down. So it's just the guy, his guitar, and a little else. I, I, I am going to quote one little thing here. This is, You can find this straight up on the, on the wiki page. That when you do hear a lot of this other stuff, you expect, well, he's a solo artist, so a lot of this he's doing himself. That even down to, to the drum loops. He says that most of the songs with drums are either loops that I made electronically or that Brendan, the uh, producer, basically recorded just playing a little drum kit that he had. Uh, in short, he says, we just made loops, layered things, and played some percussion stuff. <laughs> I mean, he's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty honest pretty about how, how it was, you know, it was a little bit secondary, it does seem, to, to maybe the message. But then we have to point out, well, I have to point out, the electric guitar interlude section. Okay. That was a big oddball for me, I because see. it was a tonal change in the lead instrument 
You mean the solo, the so the the flat out solo? It it wasn't full solo. It was. It was a lot. There was a lot lot going on behind it. I can't call it a full solo. But see, that's the thing is, it was a guitar solo that was layered in with other stuff, and I felt it fit the melody pretty well. I didn't feel like it was that odd because it's not the melody because it wasn't it wasn't standing out. I felt like it fit the flow of the song. It showed off a little bit. He had a little fun with it, but beyond that, it. Fit still the structure and instrumentation to me. Yeah, this anyway. was following like the part or part around like maybe two minutes where everything really comes to a head, and you feel like uh, it's interesting because the structure of this whole entire track is also it it feels very folk to me because it's just one verse following another following another. You don't even really get the sense of the the the, the chorus like outright immediately. It's just this constantly repetitive structure that I think was actually pretty soothing, all things considered. So when it finally does come to a head, and then you get the solo, I think it felt fairly. Uh, climactic, at least as far as the first track goes. So, yeah, I've heard the, worse. The tone drew it away from where I was with the rest of the song. That's my, my nitpick here. The t- okay, the tone, the since you mentioned the change. tone, yeah. the tone was perhaps the only element that does directly conflict with my earlier point about how the track generally sounds very, very modern, very 21st century. Mm-hmm. The tone here did kind of reach back to the 60s. It felt as if a, a kind of like folk rock uh, electric guitar solo played sometime in the late 60s. That's the way it sounded to me, and it was like maybe the one displaced element in this early part of the album. But it, it, I don't, I don't think that was a critique to me. It was just an observation. And I guess for me, it didn't feel so displaced, considering the whole track to me felt displaced to the sensibilities I had from about what Chris. your expectations yes. were, of course. Um, I think from here, it's a good jumping-off point to go to track two, which is "Dead Wishes," which. This one had such a beautiful acoustic intro. It, it, unlike the first track, which kind of just finger-picked along, this one kind of felt a little more sweeping. It brings shakers in shortly it was, after. This it was, was a new pl- level, and this gave me a lot of hope for the album. It actually, it actually made me feel... Uh, have you ever seen the movie Jeremiah Johnson? No. no. Uh, it's about a mountain man. Okay. And he goes away and becomes a mountain man because okay. he gets fed up with society. It takes place during like the Mexican-American War and he was a soldier and then he just leaves and becomes a mountain man. And the whole entire story is just his journey as a mountain man. Okay. It's got a lot of this style music. Very, very uh, uh, old school Americana, lots of folk. And it's it's a very it's a very slow place. Not a lot of like action per minute. Very mm-hmm. little of that. It's um, Robert Redford. Uh, you can't, can't go wrong. Some, True, I love Robert there. Redford, to be fair. So, it felt purely a, like just the middle of the wilderness, and you're just in it's the land of discovery, and it, it, it conjures up these images of vast plains of forest-covered mountains, maybe like the mountain on the cover. Uh, 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 I don't know. There's no forest-covered mountain. But anyway, purely acoustic guitar, and that's that's it's very relaxed, and these very short, sparse pieces of phrase work, which is what makes me feel so, I guess open and as corny as it sounds, one with nature, whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, you're sitting around a campfire, like I described earlier, but this time, much more on on the nose. And actually, I wanted to point that out. The lyrics did really fit the bill of the theme so well right here. Yep. When you start introducing the percussion on top of that, with the sort of slap percussion that they decided to use here, it just became country like folk country, so hardcore, it was it was very refreshing to kind of hear this combination because his vocals haven't changed at all, at all. It was a nice contrast for how he was singing. 
Um, you know, it's funny you mentioned because the, the lyrics themselves, I didn't even notice this earlier on, but this actually makes me feel like I'm watching the movie Jeremiah Johnson. Summer turns to autumn, winter turns to spring, and it all flies by like a speeding train. Well, maybe if you subtract the train comment, but still just the idea of just the passing of the seasons. Everything is just so slow-paced with this. And even before you, you get the lyrics, just harping on that intro where it really is just that acoustic guitar, the finger-picking is so loose. It almost feels like it's without a beat. I mean, it has a beat, but there's, there's, no, there's no big red light there's no ticker there if you're playing around a campfire who's gonna care it makes it more personable in many ways well this song definitely has a stronger setting I feel than the previous you know I said to myself not even knowing your movie reference because I haven't seen that movie that it felt like a man walking alone at sunset and the change in mm -hmm. seasons that feels very cinematic you know where you see the moon come up you know and the sun come up and you know like what they would do in cartoons to show yeah. time passing movie it has that kind takes of place over the period of a few years you're meant to believe and the bass that comes in also does a great job of merging the percussion, the acoustic, the vocals together because it did a great job accenting the vocals that he was using, mm -hmm. accenting the slight drawls he was putting at the end of phrase work, the pacing itself. It kept it going. That plus the slap-oriented beat did a lot to make the long nature of this song very enjoyable because this is a longer song it's a slightly longer and you feel uh, I, I, every step of the way i just feel you know immersed into it. it it's 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 relaxing and if it's relaxing that can usually only be a good thing for the long haul actually speaking of the spot that you just mentioned when when it does kick up with the, with the bass and with the drumming here it, it feels like it almost feels like just a bongo in the background it's nothing terribly complex you don't have a full drum kit it's just it might even be the body of the guitar itself that's making that percussion I, i'm actually more inclined to believe that and it just keeps this this sort of round going like you have a couple backups in the background still sitting around your campfire and i really love how his vocals bring out uh the emotions that we've just been conveying here especially as he says those same lines summer turns to autumn winter turns to spring and it all flies by like a speeding train and at that moment the chord progressions really started to grab me here He's on the C major 7, and then right after that, uh, the, the, the following, the chorus, Dead Wishes on a Broken Chair. Here, it goes to this E minor ninth, where his vocals are actually taking the ninth. It's absolutely beautiful in here. This is the first moment where I'm actually, like, thoroughly engaged by his vocals, Oh, I think, it, although I think it's uh, purely through the chord progression itself. Well, I mean, something he's always been very good at is kind of emoting along with the instrumentation that's presented behind him. Even though he did stand in the spotlight and he's known for his singing, he always had strong instrumentation to back him up. Yeah. And speaking of that instrumentation, the theme, the background, the hollow synth that comes in is so nice for that echoey kind of spatial effect he's going for, but not space space, just openness. <laughs> well, I think it was more of like, it's kind of like a bridge maybe, but but it was, so his, his vocals felt very muted all of a sudden. And, yes. and it also felt like there were, he was harmonizing with himself in, in, in certain intervals. And then when this all comes to a head, his, his primary vocals start belting out, uh, combining with the piano at this point, and then the drums come in full force after that. It's just got its own inner logic. It's got uh, uh, one round that leads to another round, and it's not purely pop. It doesn't have a pop structure this way. It, it's, it's not as predictable as perhaps we were ready to, you know, uh, call the first track. Instead, it's just... It just flows, and because everything else feels so loose and natural, you just you're along for the ride at every step. Yeah, with this track for sure, I was kind of hooked in. Even I mean, the way he wraps this track up, it just has that warm kind of vocal outro that kind of just tapers off and ends. It doesn't fade out; it just kind of ends, but kind of very gently. 
it, it's one of those tracks that should have dragged and in spite of itself, in spite of the length, it doesn't. It just doesn't. It just maintains its cohesion throughout. And I think that's my favorite part. The, the actual core identity, that acoustic guitar, mm-hmm. remains present throughout, yet never really overpowers any of the other sections. That's my real favorite part. And the direction it took. I think it's also because of a subtle layering process. Like, by the time you get to the very, very last round here, it even felt more playful. Like, there was just, like, one other little instrument that, that steps in here over the, the core guitar riff and, and the core drum pattern. And it's just, I don't know, it feels like it would be such such a great uh, campfire environment. Yeah, it feel, the track feels like a warm blanket, essentially. Yeah. yeah. From here we'll go to track three, Worried Moon. Um... Odd title. <laughs> what yeah. a point that. I mean, we see a lot of titles. I don't know why that's just like standing out, but it's an odd one. I picture like a moon from an old Betty Boop cartoon that actually has a worried ex- facial expression. A little grimace or something. Yeah. Okay, that's odd. <laughs> from here, we get another acoustic introduction. It seems to be the running theme. So, where does he take it? We get kind of a tribal percussion, almost. It almost. has a deep resonation here. Like, it just... it. it it's a little heavier, a little more son- sonorous. Well, I'm, I'm keen to point out the, the, the subtle differences here, again, from track to track. Because, all right, it's got a generally acoustic feel. We know that. But it, it's this steel acoustic sound that seems so much more, more uh, has more clarity to it in this track than I think earlier tracks did. Um, full of that steelness. You feel that, that metal picking at every step. And the mixing here is absolutely incredible. When the second guitar steps in, it's, it's like it's a little bit raised and recessed further. That's that that's the 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 way you interpret listening on headphones, that that kind of effect. Like someone is playing right behind your ear. It almost comes across as a slight like a sensual mixing choice. But I do have a problem with the vocals. I it's not that they're too loud. It's not that he's really changed up anything, but the vocal level seems to be a little bit too forefront, a little bit too focused here because it it overpowers a lot of the instrumentation yeah and i had another issue with it apart from it being so much in the forefront it was not as clear and i mean this in terms of his delivery of the vocals themselves they seemed a little bit more slurred now this is chris cornell we're talking about and there is a little bit of a slur in a lot of the things he does but there was some way in which his vocals were combining in the previous track you know with the chord progression with the melodies themselves that lended a little bit more clarity to the words i am having a hard time like picking up these lyrics and and the lyrics they're kind of an odd one also Worried moon shining bright. Can I sleep here tonight right beside you? I got a long way to go. I'd be off in the morning, I hope, but I don't know. If she would have me back again, or only want me for a friend, and leave a stain across my heart that never washes out. Nervous moon, in the clouds, there's a halo around your proud face, and I'm glad that we're friends. I might see you again sooner or later, I guess. There's a lot of sweetness in here, even despite the fact that I'm still not really sure what the worried moon thing means. And unfortunately, during the listening process, that's all I could really gather. I, like, it's, I just the, the question mark about the theme. It's sort of a story that's a little bit too lullaby-oriented in, in aspects. Yeah. The phrase work seems to be back and forth between the, those two ideas. Because of that, it kind of just it leaves me wanting something... I don't know, more, more concrete. If you're going to start with a very lullaby idea, worried moon shining bright, I mean, that could be in Mother Goose right there. <laughs> but he doesn't commit to it. It, it could have worked. 
the other parts where he starts talking about the hopes, but I don't know if she'll have me back again. These are a lot more concrete, and it's it's not separating the the two different identities in the lyrics. They flow a little bit too solidly together for me to get a a back and forth between the two. That is not the only problem. The melody itself ended up just being a series of punctuations instead of a flow and that's where it really lost it for me as the song progresses and each element comes in the bass the percussion each part just feels like a a period or a series of period or a series of emotes and here i was focused of, more on the slurring so it was like <clears throat> slurring in between all of the punctuated yeah you know, there was there was no easiness to it there was no there was no nod towards the actual lullaby aspect, and I think that might have been where it even gets... It, it really separated the two ideas for me. There was no flow to the music, so the parts that were meant to be a little bit super sweet didn't come off as such. Well, there was there was one part. Like, around a minute, 30 seconds, somewhere in there, these falsettos in the background start stepping in over his main vocals. Again, it may just be him multiple times, but it's made to sound a little bit like a, like a choir. Um, and uh, that was kind of sweet. I think that promoted the lullaby feel a little bit. So, at the end of the day, I feel like this song was... It's kind of a, a, a weird way to describe it, especially con- considering the fact that we it has a folk feel, but... This goes back to like that that constant critique of mine about how a single can feel very department store ready, for instance. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the way this came across, which is a little bit. Unfortunately, I think it takes that warm folk feel, and I think it just kind of squashes it and compresses it down into something that's a little bit more uh, accessible. And I almost wish this had gone balls to the wall like the last track did. Not to say that you that balls to the wall is even the way to describe this kind of music. All you really need to do is kind of like sit back, let it happen, and let it feel very, very natural. But each and every step in this track, I feel like nothing was really was really like bringing it out. You know, this again wouldn't be that track in the department store where I'm really going to stop shopping. Yeah, well, I think it's also just because at this point, the only thing that stands out, and it doesn't stand out by the third track on the record, is his vocals, but they're not standing out for the album. It's Chris Cornell, you know what his vocals sound like, you enjoy them, but beyond that, the instrumentation isn't doing much to enhance the experience like the previous track did. And again, that idea of the whole, like, worried moon thing. I, I, I don't mean to overthink this, I think the, the basics of it is just, he's just staring up at the moon, and this is his, his only object to, to sort of dump all his troubles there. It's, it, that's, that's who he addresses, like, well, dear John, no, it's worried moon, comma, and then his, his, uh, his little letter to the moon <laughs> yeah. about his, his other problems. But then he kind of shifts that back and forth. And I think that's the, the thematic flow that didn't really invite me. You know, It just felt like some kind of uh, an, obscure, an obscure phrase that is about the only thing that's going to catch you and make you think that's either a weird, wonderful, or beautiful title. And then beyond that, I'm not sure if the rest is, is as engaging. I would agree. Yeah, I just I feel like... The song, considering what we got in the previous two tracks, the song just kind of, I don't want to say phones it in, but it's definitely just not as impactful or as engaging as the previous tracks. From here, track four. Track four, before we disappear. Starts with piano, very quickly abandons it. And that was was just very disappointing. Because it wasn't just pure piano. It was piano with like some sort of reverb thrown up on it. It was very jarring but a soothing kind of a jar 
if if that can be applied. No, I think I think those are direct antonyms. <laughs> but no, I I think I I get you in the sense that this is sort of that like auditorium upright piano you know feel. It feels very feels very vast and it's just all alone. My problem was the chord progression here. It wasn't as engaging as earlier tracks because of the fact that it really just stuck with that pop four chord thing. Yeah. It was just like the basic triads. Yes, there was a there was a lower. It, although there is one oddball here, because the piano sounded so uh, unprofessional, it sounded like a, like an old piano that was wasn't tuned so well. The whole track, in fact, was not really on your twelve go-to notes. Somewhere around G, but a little sharp or a little flat. Not sure about that. Um, that's about the one thing I could say for the track that makes it makes it feel a little bit of a standout just from the get-go. But I didn't think that it was really used to the best of of I mean, not to say that everyone around here has, like, perfect pitch. I don't even have perfect pitch. I just happened to notice that when I was just, like, playing along with this. It's like, huh, that's not on G. Not that that's, like, the most uncommon thing in the world, but I would think that would be used to more of a... to more of its advantage. Like, well... You'd think there'd be a purpose to yeah, it. Yeah, a purpose to it. Like, it's, there's something eerie about this. I mean, the song itself kind of has an air of, and I said this before, kind of a kumbaya kind of sit around. You mentioned sitting around a campfire. Yeah, And, and this like, song that, very strongly feels that, that way. That yeah. feels more of something of, of consonance and, yeah. and unity. And it, again, it's an odd choice for them to be a little bit off. Um, as far as the lyrics are concerned, going with the fact that you do have the kumbaya feel, almost like a gospel in the background mm-hmm. in, in certain moments in this, in this uh, track. They're singing, uh, but if there's a door in every cell, a pearl inside every shell chorus how hard can it be to share your love with me how hard can it be to rise with me each morning how long when it feels like we'll live together i fear that time will hide the years it it feels like more of a personal address again more Mm -hmm. like worried moon but yet in this sense it feels more like it's 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 bigger and grander and there's multiple people singing it that's an odd choice again the song was bigger a bit than than Word Moon was. It felt a little bigger, but but the scale, the sense of scale, didn't really come from the instrumentation. There was a little bit in his vocals. Again, I think I agree and with John. And the background vocals that I think I heard. Yeah, the background vocals. I, f- I agree with John though that I think if the piano had kind of continued throughout the track, it might have added a layer that would have kind of built it out a little more. It just didn't feel big enough. Yeah, no, definitely going back to that well, point, which is what I was getting to, John. That that piano, it it was really just the intro, and it didn't even really engage me from a chordal perspective, so that by the time it, it left, I felt like it was almost a non-entity. This song kind of straddled the line between that kumbaya campfire, because we can't think of another word, and mm. one word we really like, anthemic. It did not go full anthemic, because the voice was not focusing on that. It wasn't trying to call out to everyone. Yet at the same time, it was so inclusive, but so low-key, it it, it just straddles between the two and didn't really do either of them strong enough, forcefully enough, to to have that identity. I feel like the best way to describe it is rallying. It wasn't really anthemic, but it was definitely a a, a song that was trying to rally the people ar- around him. Like but kind in, of instead ju- of 10,000 people, yeah. it was 10, 15, 20 people. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess that might be the way to put it. It, just, it was a sway along song. And and speaking to his vocals again, like I, I love his vocals, but I'm finding that I'm at a loss in the last two tracks, this one and the one before, to really describe them beyond what we've already said. You know, 
He's a talented singer. He goes low. He goes high within his range. He has a little bit of diversity, but on this track, it doesn't really go much beyond that. He doesn't try anything unique or interesting. He kind of sticks within his safe zone. I will say that lyrically, this track was perhaps a little bit more interesting, and it, and it did get me even from the beginning. Like, not just to cut straight to the, the pre-chorus and the chorus, where he feels more like he's addressing the person and getting down to the issue, but the rest of it is a lot more, uh, you know, it's again that, that rumination. It's, it's from the first verse, time ain't nothing if it ain't fast. Taking everything that you ever had and giving nothing in return but a cold bed and a quiet earth. That's pretty pretty depressing. I mean, even considering the title, Before We Disappear, obviously this is a song about things he wants to get off his chest before death, and I think that's where the personal address finally does uh, step in when he gets down to the course. Uh, how hard can it be to share your love with me? I mean, obviously this is a state of... of coming to a head in your life where you feel like you need to start shoring up these little things because you're getting older, you know, a uh, heart attack could come at any minute. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're going to find that love, there's, there's an act of, there's an element of desperation in every part of this. Uh, even in the bridge, I, I happen to like these lyrics as well. I'm not one to waste my time searching for some silver lining. Somewhere out there lies the stone, lies the shelter of your heart. It's a little more ambiguous, but it's a nice, lies the stone There's and the a shelter. strong imagery there. Yeah. It's just very powerful words. <laughs> very powerful words, yes. Well, the, the short, you know. that's the problem. Without the force, there, it doesn't come across that way. It comes across as crooning together as opposed to proclaiming this imagery that he has in the song. And that just means yeah, I, I wasn't invested in it. Yeah, it was a it was a musical issue more than anything. A track called "Before We Disappear." I expected to be far more dire. I mean, come on, do away with the the four chord progression stuff. I felt like this should have been uh, at least as 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 focused, perhaps as as track two, "Dead Wishes." From here, we move to track five, "Through the Window," which starts off with a heavier tone in the acoustic range. Mm -hmm. It's a uh, it is a different kind of a sound that they're setting up with. But more old-timey, I felt. Yeah. Kind of back to that is where we were earlier. Uh, uh, I guess more acoustic uh, in, in <laughs> some ways. Well, no, it's more like you're actually in front of the guitar. No, sure. I, this actually, I felt like this is something that, that the Coen brothers would absolutely love to use somewhere oh, in their sure. films. <laughs> yeah, I can absolutely see that. Send it out to them. They'd love it. Um, but, but the track progresses extremely predictably because we get four measures and then a bass comes in and four measures and percussion comes in. Mm -hmm. It it doesn't really change the formula. It's an introduction to different sections kind of a It was the formula that may have intrigued me earlier on the album, but here it's, it's wearing thin a little bit. I mean, I Steve had said when listening it had this kind of weird familiarity because we it sounded like something we'd heard before but for yeah. the life of us we couldn't place what. It just had this kind of catch-all familiarity. All in that guitar in that guitar riff and maybe, mm -hmm. maybe even a little bit in, in the vocal melody itself. Something about this is just yeah it's, it's anywhere across like it's the any man any folk, rock song yeah any folk song i guess you can call it the any man any folk song it of just course. It, it it sounded like like uh it, i mean it would have made as much sense to be sung by bob dylan as it was to be sung by bruce springsteen as it was to be sung by chris cornell like there was just a yeah. ubiquity to it yet yet ubiquity the, of americana the actual lyrics while they come off as wall of text as you're going through the song, are very poetic. And it's the lack of really inflection that keeps them from really coming through in the song itself. The clouds that gathered turned to rain. The candles on your sill burned out. The weather on your face turned to match the mood outside. Reading through poems that you saved, that make the gloomy hours make sense. 
or do they lose their power with the yellowing of age? Okay, there's some impact going on right here, but because it's kind of deadpan for his voice, I'm not feeling it. I definitely didn't get a sense of it while listening to him sing it. I mean, and this is a guy who doesn't really struggle from emoting from his singing. He has Mm -hmm. a passionate singing style, but it's just not here in this song. It does feel very kind of... I mean, he's never not without a little bit of variety, but for sure, like, you're not getting the emotional impact of this track that you would from the lyrics we just read. It just kind of falls flat. I'm inclined almost not to be that harsh, because I feel like his vocals every step of the way here really are emotive in their way. This is one of those really, really tricky tracks that we don't come across a lot because we try to be really precise in everything we do, but this is this is lacking an it factor, and I, I, I am not exactly sure what that is, and I'm admitting it right here on air. <laughs> I think it's the fact that there's conflict in the words, yet everything else is non-confrontational. Everything else is just meant to be soothing for you. Yeah, I, all that's, right. That's what really just lost it for me. I wanted conflict because there is... Okay. You sold the best of yourself out on a chain of gray and white lies. One syllable at a time. You should have made them pay a higher price. That could have been, like, a a, a turning point for a story right there. And it just comes across as the next part. The next natural flow of what's going on. That's not a flow. That's conflict. Where's the music paralleling this? No, I agree 100. percent That that is it. That is exactly where this where the song is falling short here. I mean, uh, that's a constant critique of ours. It's like, well, have the music reflected. At the end of the day, we are reviewing music. I, yeah. I do love you know bringing the poetry into it here as we do. Um, but it's 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 not everything. It's uh, if if that's not the the emotional. Uh, reaction that you feel in the course of listening when you're not actually following every single word it, it's just, even if you are following every single word, the the, the music directly contrasts with it um, and, and not to any purpose that I can perceive. So. And, and one little nitpick uh, the, the late rebuild the very late in the track rebuild I feel like that was the final cherry on top of just going through the motions. It felt like it's the same sort of thing that you just come to expect mm-hmm. with these songs. From here, we go to track six. Josephine. And, okay, my right up front, my favorite track on the album. Okay, uh, close to my favorite track on the album. I really, see, again, I, I really harp on Dead Wishes. Even the second track is still very strong with me. It stays in my head as, as, as this deeper into the album. And I felt like the intro here was very very similar to it. So the fact that this is paralleling Dead Wishes, to me, is no problem whatsoever. Also, to talk about that acoustic intro, this time we get something a little different, at least. He, plenty of acoustic guitar on this album, but... With this track specifically, there's spacing between each chord. He kind of lets it breathe and hang. Which doesn't is another com- thing that's very similar to Dead Wishes. It doesn't completely fade out, but then he moves on to the next chord and kind of goes through that. Also, his vocals, for the first time, feel a lot more sincere, but a little far up, kind of feel far-reaching, too. Like, they're reaching out to you, kind of an emotiveness that we weren't really feeling before, either. That's actually what you mentioned earlier, that he can hit his range. He mm-hmm. can reach outside of his range. And there's hitches, and there's playing around with syllables that we just don't get on the majority of this album so far. You take that, and then you add in, in verse 2, I think everybody's favorite part, the strings. So yeah. we have a selection of strings here that add depth and weight to this track that we had not gotten before. It's on the, t- the big thing that stepped out, that stepped 
this track like beyond De- Dead Wishes in some ways. And also on top of that, not only is there strings, but there's also no percussion in the entire song, which yeah. really makes the guitar, the strings, his vocals all pop well, really strong. There's sort of percussion later on as a bass element comes in, but it's not a pound. But it's not like a, str- a, a drum. There's no drum. There's no bongo. There's no drum kit. It's merely accent on his vocals, which so freeform. Just everything meshes here, which is why it's my favorite track, which is why I was so upfront. It is just a longing song about Josephine, and it really does feel like he's he's reaching into his heart for this one. There's an emotional connection here for the first time on the album that I'm just totally inside. There's a strange irony with, I, I feel like, a couple of the points that we're making here, especially going back to the beginning when I said, you know, that it's a, it's a good thing that this album was not recorded to make it sound as, as if it was old-timey, or as right. if it was like a really scratchy, um, unkempt uh, folk recording, you know? It, it's, it's use, it uses modern techniques, it's very well mixed, and I think that's to its credit every step of the way. But I do think we've noticed that we definitely are favoring the tracks that perhaps sound much rawer just from a, uh, from a, a structure, structural standpoint. Tracks that are written to sound a little bit more relaxed, as opposed to pop-friendly, radio-friendly, and that kind of stuff. Because, of course, we all know that. We all know that from, you know, dozens, hundreds of different sources. So that's, that's like, take it or leave it. The, the stuff where I feel that he really is able to convey his emotions best is when he steps back and goes toward that campfire environment, as we're calling it. But then the last little split with this is the strings. Because you'd think that that would be a, a direct separator. You'd think that that would be the thing that actually says, well, this is not of an old-fashioned style, or this is not terribly raw. How raw can it be if you have an orchestra in the background? That's not something that typically follows you around to a campfire. Hmm. But I think it's rather benign. And I think it's it's useful here because it's it almost is, is narrating. It's as if something was external from the stories itself. You can still sit around your campfire and I still feel like I experience Josephine as if he is just right there, you know, in his campfire and it feels very personal every step of the way. But the strings elevate it in a sense that that it becomes more of a narrative. Like, I'm just witnessing him through a screen in a sense, which is powerful in a way. And the imagery is so strong in the lyrics. Sheets of rain, cold and gray, run down the page just about your name. With just the weight of your silent smile crushing all around me while I screamed it out loud. That yeah. is, is great use of juxtaposition in, in lyrical writing. To go into the chorus, my sweet Josephine, why don't you come and marry me? I've got every kind of love that you will ever need. Dying here on bended knees. See, this is the same sentiment that we caught earlier, but yet we didn't hear it. We exactly. didn't hear it in the music, and here we get it. You feel the desperation here. It's it's found with those those sparse phrases in the guitar. Uh, it it shouldn't be as rigid as we heard, you know, in a few previous tracks. Rigidity is is not. It's it's not Chris Cornell's friend in this kind of work in his in his message. The more fluid he lets it be, the more kind of giving himself to the music it kind of envelops him and he delivers it that way. It gives it a sincerity and honesty and an emotiveness that the other tracks don't have when it doesn't have that. Bingo. (laughs) (laughs) Track seven, Murderer of Blue Skies. First of all, I want to talk about how visceral that title is. Murder of Blue Skies. First of all, if you think what's one of the brightest and cheeriest thing you can think of besides shining sun is probably bright blue skies. So, like, the idea of murder of blue skies is, like, that's dark. Even for this album, that's pretty dark. Yeah. 
Um, well, the funny thing is it wasn't the most interesting track to me outright. <laughs> the, right. It, it, Mixing-wise, it probably was a little bit of a split. It was. It might be even the pop-friendliest track on this album uh, from a mixing standpoint. But I don't know. That made me like it a little bit here because there is... I don't know, this is another one where there is no attempt to make it sound old and unrefined, so it feels like, again, it's in it's in the 21st century, and it was just maybe about as radio-friendly as you can make this style. It's right on the fringe of everything I just described. I mean, I would say it lean more towards the more radio-friendly version of Decemberist and that kind of stuff if we're talking folk. Like, it's definitely in the vein of that. Um, what I like, though, is that when the bass comes in on this track shortly after the intro... It's kind of got like a buzzy, not necessarily reverb effect, but it sounds like almost like it's too close to the amp, almost. That yeah. kind of a buzz. It's And it's being used as an accent item again. And one thing that Matt pointed out as we were going along, the, the contrast that's built into the chorus is a nice little bit as well. So the song sounds like a longing love track. However, John will now give us some lyrics saying to the otherwise. Murder of blue skies, I can't wait to never be with you again. And I can't wait to lead a life that you're not in. And I won't break, though I may bend. From time to time, I can't wait to never be with you again. What's interesting is that with lyrics like that, when you see I can't hear, I can't wait in what sounds like a longing love song or a love song, it, it, you think, oh, it's, he's going to sing about how I can't wait to be with this person again. But instead, it goes the other way. It's clever wordplay. It's not something revolutionary, but it's definitely clever wordplay, which I appreciate. And at the end of the day, it was kind of the only thing I latched onto all said and done. The piano that does come in around the second rendition of the chorus ends up being very background. The... The electric guitar interlude with the uh, It's a guitar solo. Stop calling them interludes. It was it's a solo. It's not solo enough. It was <laughs> just... Okay, I'm calling ball was, on that. No, it was really just paralleling what the acoustic was doing. It wasn't really breaching anything. It, it was, was very it was, blasé. It was, it was more playful than the actual acoustic guitar was. It did stand out a little bit. I disagree. I feel like the guitar the guitar solo here is like Chris Cornell taking a moment where he had a little fun with a guitar solo and then kind of overlaid it. And it oh, but it's more than but, that, but, though. But, See, but, I, th- I think this is this, both diminishing this a little bit. I think I actually thought this was one of the most original things, perhaps, that we've heard uh maybe since track two because again all right I, I like certain things on this album but he does repeat his tricks a little bit this was completely new this was a, a style of guitar the manner of playing almost felt like like the guitar was caught in a vice or something like that now if you want to argue how well it fit all right fine but i think the idea itself was fairly original and it absolutely qualifies as a solo even though it may have not been very ornate or very frilly i i think that was the point really well i agree that it, it fit i mean the song does get a bit heavier towards the end. You know, as the song wraps up, it does pick up a bit. It does get a little heavier. Okay, so the well, solo you, fits. You can argue that it fits or that it doesn't fit. I make well, this separate point. I will say that it, in the long run, I did feel the same. I did feel it fit. It felt like the idea this album has been circling around the entire time up until this point. I almost... And definitely in retrospect, but I almost expected this to happen. This sort of like big build-up with acoustic guitar uh, into electric guitar to happen already on this album. In track three, track four, track five, this is where it kind of naturally goes when you talk about the evolution of 90s and 2000 sort of folk rock. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's gonna go here. It was almost inevitable that it would. Okay, well, I, I, won't argue, I won't argue that. <laughs> um, 
But I don't know. Maybe as far as the I, you're thinking about music in general. Yes. But I guess I had I had been sold maybe on his particular new brand of Chris Cornell that he created within the confines of this album that I was I was still somewhat surprised. So. Oh, does everyone else have anything else to say? Or are we just no. going to talk about that solo here? No. All right. I mean, the the, al- the song itself didn't have any super standout structural stuff. It was mostly the sincerity of the lyric delivery, the 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 wordplay, and and some minor instrumentation elements that kind of did make it stand out. Well, part of me wants to harp a little bit on, on the lyrics themselves here because we have an interesting theme, the murderer of blue skies. I want to get into that a little bit. Um, after the part that John read... Uh, now the truth will set you free, but all you had was lying in you, so you built a cage for me, all the while pretending to be a living saint with a thorny crown, and me condemned to be your clown. I applaud you as you take a bow. There's a lot of bitterness in this mm-hmm. track, and and I feel like in some sense the solo was kind of like the culmination of this. I feel like it, it was this anger, this, this little... Uh, chip on his shoulder being borne out in some sense. I, I mean, will, th- she is the murderer of blue skies, I feel. That's I'll agree. Harsh. I'll agree. Actually, that puts it in a different light than yeah. what I saw previously. It, it definitely works in that respect. I will definitely give you props for that one. Yeah. Well, it's not props. I mean, give him props. <laughs> Don't give me props. No, no, for explaining it to me. <laughs> okay. To, for for making me a believer. You made it okay. easy for his brain. I mean, to I had I had enough trouble with with a uh, uh, worrying moon, but this one is pretty apparent. So yeah. I, I I feel at least you know it it should be mentioned that the chip in his shoulder is coming out. He even goes on to say, "I always thought that I pride myself on patience, but it's wearing thin. Never thought that falling for you only meant falling down." Yeah, which that's is really, rough. Yeah. I mean, he's not coming into this with any... Well, there is so far a bit of an arc here because earlier on he seemed almost lovelorn, like just flat-out desperation, like uh, take me back or something like yeah. that. And then here it's it's sort of that second step where you're... You know, the puts the five stages of denial. Well, I feel here he's reached the angry stage. Well, I, what I like is this being paired with Josephine. Josephine is where he does feel kind of over the moon, like overly obsessed in love. And then from here to just be such a harsh flip, it's like two sides of a very damaged relationship, which is interesting. Yeah. And an interesting dichotomy to have kind of in the middle of an album. Yeah, and of course of course going back to that that first line that, that John mentioned, I can't wait to never be with you again is, is probably the strongest of the batch. I um, agree. I mean he's done. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So it doesn't get clearer than that. He he chooses that time to go on to the title track of this album, Higher Truth, track eight. Uh, as far as the beginning is concerned, this kind of goes back a little bit more to that piano. He uses mm-hmm. that. It's kind of his, uh, his his backdrop, I think, for for a few of these tracks. It's got the four chord progression stuff, but this had a more of an ambitious, like, 70s piano rock thing going for it that it, I think stepped it far and beyond uh, previous cases of his use of piano, which I didn't really think much of at the time. He introduced it to us and then didn't forget about it. That was very yeah, it refreshing. Was an intricate int- part of the well, song. Well, this one has the feel of that man in an empty auditorium almost kind of playing, at least in the beginning. You know, there's definitely a lot of space in this song. Mm-hmm. He's not constricting himself here, and his vocals play very well with the piano. I think they work together in tandem very well. But it wasn't just the the, the pop portion. It wasn't just the chords and the bare, bare bones triads. It was it was it had some spunk. There was a little bit of Elton in this, maybe. 
Uh, I, maybe would, I could definitely hear that. Hint to Carol King or something like that. It goes that. about a solid 50 seconds before we get anything else but his vocals and the piano. And then even when you, he brings in the guitar after that, it doesn't overtake the piano. They work in tandem very well. There's a lot of intermingling and interplay here. But by the time the, the drum percussion comes in, then the piano starts taking a back seat. Uh, no, it doesn't the... take a back seat. You just don't notice it as much because yeah, it okay, does have a consistent repetition. And okay, right there, that word is one I was gonna bring up. The metronome effect of what's going on here, where pretty much everything is just playing at the same pace, was kind of well. It, it made the song feel very long. I I feel this is a track that was trying to bank off of the same thing that maybe track one uh, succeeded with, in my opinion, and that's the case where you have this this round, this structure that, uh, well, we've got to keep going back to this campfire thing here, but it's like if you're doing that at a campfire, you have this investment, I feel like, in each and every verse. You feel like the verses can take on their own life, regardless of the fact that they might sound repetitive. That's what a round is. Of course, a a round would imply that you're kind of overlapping yourself, but, you know, just these, these signature sections that can follow one upon the other, and you don't really need a chorus. Now, this does have a chorus, but I'll take the truth, the higher truth, the higher truth. I want the truth, the higher truth. But it, it doesn't, you, you don't really feel like the, the, the structure of the song is, is supporting that in many ways. It, you, it feels like it always comes back to that, that piano pattern. And don't get me wrong, it's actually kind of an interesting chord progression. Like I said in the outset, it's, it's not your, your pop four chord progression. It, it moves, it has some, some breadth to it. But by the fourth or fifth time, you still still feel like like it's just not going anywhere and as john said the metronome effect the the metronomic uh consistent tick which of course you're going to find in just about every single track everywhere in except the loose tracks which i think he excelled at here it's you only feel it more than you do others because of the lack of variety i just feel like also to to further that point between the length of the song because it is on the longer side and the repetition of those choruses the instrumentation in the choruses also doesn't stand out very much. While the verses do have some strong instrumentation, even though the piano does fade to the background a bit, once we hit the choruses, it does feel a little disconnected. Not completely, but enough that you notice there's a difference. There's a shift yeah. in the instrumentation, and a strong shift. And it just doesn't have the same impact, the same je ne sais quoi, I guess, that the rest of the song has. It also has another one of those electric infusions towards the end of the track that does break up the metronome effect. I mean, yeah, it gives, yeah, okay. it gives the give final it minute or so of the song a little bit of strength. Like, I feel like this song And that might was something be... the first track also had to its credit. Yeah. He always reaches that climax after having several successive rounds, and then finally it comes to a head, and you're supposed to release there. I just but... feel like if they pulled out the middle chunk and pushed the end and beginning closer together, it might have been a tighter or song. Or added a new section. We could well, speculate yeah. about this all day. It's just... It, it just it felt it felt its length. Up until this point, there are songs that I thought were a little repetitive, but they didn't feel their length. I still went with them. I enjoyed them. I relaxed to them. This one, I kind of was waiting for it to end. I'm also going to disagree with you on an earlier point when you said that the vocals felt very, very matched with the rest. It's not that they were, well, necessarily matched or unmatched. It's that they felt kind of the way they've been the whole album. They excel. I think he's really a great vocalist, but I still feel like, in some sense, they they are a little bit of a separate entity. Well, at that time, like I'd mostly that spotlight feel and everything else is just swirling around, and maybe no, maybe no no greater than in this track because it has the the piano rock style. You feel like that's that metronomic effect to this 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 uh this haze that he he's he's immersed in. 
he it's less that he's immersed in it he's just on the peripheral of it or like the the central dot in a semi-arc i don't know and speaking of that haze there's something in the chorus that really hasn't come up much in the rest of the album a reverb on his vocal work that once again keeps it from reaching the heights as you were saying but it does promote that idea of being kind of soft in the long haul yeah from here we go to track nine let your eyes wander it's folk Okay. This it's straight right. up folk right in your face as soon as the guitar comes in. This feels more like a lullaby, lullaby though, where we because hinted, it's more delicate than earlier tracks. We had hinted that Worried Moon also sort of felt that way, but this one's way more delicate. It feels softer. It has an air of kind of nighttime kind of softness to it, which kind of I think made it closer to a lullaby than the previous. It track. does add the piano though. We have that in this track as well. It adds a little degree of oomph. But I, I had a little bit of a harder time this uh, with this one. And, and this is one, uh, again, kind of going back to the theme here, because we just had the, the last track, A Higher Truth. Um, and to go back to those lyrics, I'll take A Higher Truth, A Higher Truth, I Want The Higher Truth. I mean, as far as its, its uh, expansion on this theme is concerned, it really just reaches that point of... of because we got the desperation and we got the anger and then finally here it's 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 appealing to something higher and then finally in this track let your eyes wander it's a little bit more i think about finding the next thing and that was an interesting theme i just didn't find it anywhere within the music itself uh the bridge it takes a while but finally in the bridge we do get first of all a a uh, vocal pacing undergoes a bit of a change. He, his phrasing does break up the monotony that was coming previously. Right. And he starts really layering. Not heavy, not wall of sound style, but he starts flushing out what the song was doing. My issue is, while it was enjoyable, he immediately, after this bridge, cuts it out and does a completely different re- rebuild for the final verse-chorus structure. It was... It felt shoehorned in this case. It felt like oh, okay, I'm going to do a bridge. It's got to be different. So he just made it different. I wanted just the bridge. That might have been a a great way to focus sort of the ambling music of this track. Yeah, no, I I think I agree with that. And and, I mean, then the only thing I can go back to is again, once again, these, these lyrics. So let your eyes wander, wander away. Your heart is young and longing to stray. Let your eyes wander wild and free. Sooner or later, they will look back. They will look back to me. And that's the one oddball here, because if you read every single lyric in this track, is really just about, like, getting over it. He wants to get over it. It even feels like let your eyes wander is a common euphemism for essentially, like, you know, following the next pretty thing that walks on by. And and that's why I kind of see in here, even though it's not explicitly uh, said. But then finally, when it says, they will look back, they will look back to me. That's only the way he ends phrases, as if to say... Well, maybe he can at least look back to the previous girl, that being perhaps Josephine, if we could put a name to it, and and maybe learn something from it or not look so bitterly upon it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's a little clouded here. It's not a clear messaging. I feel like, though... Besides, why would it say to me? I mean, I, yeah. he, he's singing. I don't know. I think the thing here is also, when looking at the vocals, they do come across more sweetly, very sincere... And the instrumentation that kicks up, as John alluded to, when we get about halfway through the song and the bass comes in and we get other strings again and it kind of builds out, it it adds to the song. I feel like that, though from a theme perspective, I have to agree with Steve, it's just 
it seems a little confusing. I mean, my guess is when he's saying look back to me is that he's giving advice to someone who is looking to move on, but maybe tr there's truly deep down feelings for each other. I don't know. It's, it's a little tough to kind of disseminate. I still believe this is um, this is first person he speaks of himself, but he a lot of times speaks about it in the third person. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I believe it's kind of self-narration. Um, that's how I see it personally, but hey, it's music. However <laughs> you want to see it. <laughs> um, let's go to track 10. Only these words. So this is where we see the most noticeable noticeable reverb on his vocals from the minute he starts singing. You know, in previous tracks there was a little bit here and there, but here it's a strong sense of hollowness and echoiness. And he does some self-harmonizing as well in the choruses, which is another thing that he really didn't do too much. It, it's a lot more present here. It does a lot to make his voice livelier. The energy that is in this track is a lot livelier, but it still didn't really do much to me to pick me up in, as far as the album is concerned. I'm not really feeling this energy coming across. Well, a lot of that is because we're we're nearing the end of the album here. But I will I, I will agree that when he whenever he does anything different, when he self harmonizes, uh, whenever he chooses to, I think layer on top of himself, it's usually the the biggest uh, shift in his vocals. That's usually the chance where he'll do something completely different. Uh, completely different. Not his is normally static, but still expert uh, style of singing. But instead, you know, he'll throw in some falsetto. He'll uh, he'll just throw in a slightly different timbre. He'll mess with the reverb, something. And because this this song is generally plastered with reverb, something very different from from each and every previous track, which sounds so closely mixed. This is the one that's just you know it seems completely all in in the distance. Um, and a part of me is also thinking that thematically there's a reason for that. It's because well, of the dream that's going on right here. The whole track itself is about a dream. It ends with six o'clock a.m. The alarm rings out. Awoken from the dream, no more castle down a long road, no more kings and no more queens, but she's a princess nonetheless, and a handsome prince is what she'll get. Okay, I understand now. Thematically, he actually is doing a, a lot to take you out of just the basic idea of something so concrete, but here it begs the question, why are we going from a heavy theme of campfire songs to... Sort of like a dreamscape, sort of like a a, a, a whole different metaphor idea. It does I think seem it's a little. A fantasy. I mean, it does seem a little odd though, because it feels more whimsical. It's more storytelling. It's not about. There's no real romance here. It's 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 a, a mom and dad and their their you know little one, and you know it's the, she would say, and I she... love you. He would say, I love you. It's about parents to their children he's telling this story of this parent to their child and it's it does seem thematically a little out of place unless he's telling a story as if for his child which could be might not be i don't know i just it just feels a little odd you know what it might even be him talking about josephine in a in a sort of i don't know a lover kind of removed sense, but the weird part is the narrator has a completely different slant in this song compared to the rest of the album. I would agree I with that, but I would have said like an acceptance sense, uh, an, an idea that, well, he's maybe come to terms where he can, uh, uh, after the fact, look back and, and wish her the best. You know, the idea that he, her her prince will come. <laughs> and I mean, it's an oddball, I do agree, in, in terms of its placement, but it's not like... It's not like 
impossible to believe considering the the whole stages of denial that I kind of see uh, going through this record. Acceptance is the last. <laughs> well, the, the and one, we're nearing the end. The one argument I could see for that is he will say I love you when talking about the prince, That's the handsome saying. prince. Yeah. True. Yet the entire dream is framed where she's a child with her father and her mother. She is the princess to a king and queen. Not a story about a prince and princess getting together. That's not there. It's about the love a parent has for their child. And that's where it kind of falls apart for me. Where is, where's the, the, the person she found with the wandering eyes? But that I, is I the th- issue I, I got it, here. I think it's the idea that, well, parental love is the first love that you experience, I, I, ideally, and then from that you, you burgeon out into finding other forms of love, which is why I think this follows the pattern of beginning the dream by saying, in a castle down a long road, a little girl was born to a king and to a queen, and her mother's eyes welled up with tears of joy staring at the tiny face of a miracle she made, she would say, I love you, in which case it is entirely parental, and by the end... It is. It, it does seem to be far more romantic. So it, his idea of a healthy evolution of the concept of love—it's what I see personally. I mean, it's not. I don't, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. Okay. It just feels a little bit outside the narrative. Moving yeah. on. His time to be fanciful, I guess. There we go. Moving on onto track eleven, circling. Circling. This is another one of the songs we've gotten a lot of. I don't know how else to phrase it. This seems like I'm going to be repeating myself a little bit too much. I do. This song is him being self-aware that he knows he's circling around the same things he's been doing the whole album. That's really, I think, a little too meta. Ouch. I don't know. I feel like this song, the biggest problem here that makes it kind of indistinguishable is it's just... It hits the bullet points we had hit before. You know, his vocals are on point. They they often are. You know, there's acoustic guitar, there's percussion, there's bass. And everything is timed to uh, the, the millisecond to be exactly when it's supposed to come in. There's no free form. There's no just going with it that we like in all those in those previous tracks and my problem is is john's problem as earlier the the case of of the music not matching the otherwise extremely dark uh of features in these lyrics there's a feel-good quality about this track it doesn't seem to even have the 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 sadness and contemplation that might have even been there on some of the more pop radio friendly tracks from earlier i mean even though that's predictable it's still they, they had their degree of sadness um, especially here when he's like echoing himself and the call and response thing. It just feels very uplifting. And yet when you look at the lyrics, circling around the drain, can't find my way back home. The road is long and never ends. Dark is the heart that wanders. That's bleak. This is a complete turnaround here. Yeah, the I lyrics mean, are the most depressing they've been so far. They, he had a little black cloud most of the album. Here, he's in full darkness. Like, this it okay. just gets pretty heavy. I and mean, I feel like we had acceptance. We had a, a much, much light-hearted track. There was evolution, and this, is, this doesn't have a really good outlook on the situation. I mean, the idea of circling anyway is that you're going to be kind of back where you started, and life is cyclical, and, and there's no hope for any of us. <laughs> Just like a stray dog in the rain, I can run all night and get nowhere. I picture you out underneath the porch light, calling my name all night and waiting for me. I thought I heard your voice in the water as I walked by a fountain uptown. Now I'm an orphaned at the door of a church, just watching the water come down. That's just, that's that's like... That's as depressing as you can really get. I mean, and I will personally say that this is it, it, it reaches out because that idea of like someone you used to love long ago and then all of a sudden you have a dream where they're popping up. 
that that happens and that mm -hmm. can be really really because you have no control over that situation like you can at least say you know your friends can tell you ah come on buck up you know when you're when you're alive and conscious and walking around during the day if you start showing those symptoms then well then it's not great but you have no control over what your subconscious does when you're actually in a, in, a, in a dream state and it's what this kind of feels like well, also, I'd be the first to admit that the subconscious can be pretty cruel. Yeah. And that's what this sounds like. I mean, you know, I personally have had horrible nightmares, even while being in a committed relationship of abandonment and loss and, and being alone. And so it's it's perfectly realistic to have that. I just think that lyrically, again, like you said earlier, this is way bleaker than he had been the whole record. And and the music doesn't match it at all. No. And also, I do want to uh, adjust something. The, my, my metaphor about the dream in this particular particular song here i don't believe the, the the dream is actually present that was just my personal uh i equate it to that because right. that's something you don't have control over but it obviously can happen when you're alive and conscious as well. <laughs> well obviously you're still alive when you're dreaming so maybe that's kind of a misnomer but still um the idea that it, sometimes during those dark hours when you're just alone with your own thoughts they come back yeah. they just come back to fruition and you have absolutely no control over it that's uh rather sad it just but it's 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 easy to believe. I mean, if you're going again, following along this, the five stages of grief, well, that's the thing they don't tell you. <laughs> that's the one they leave out. Is that when you're when you have acceptance, or you can only accept it in as much as maybe you can be a a fully functional human being again. But then after that, it's, nothing ever leaves. Well, of course. I mean, anyone who's going through those stages of grief for death also go through the same stuff. You could be perfectly fine and then one day get hit with a wave of sadness and break down. Yeah. Even though you're over it, like you've, you've accepted their death and you don't disbelieve it, but you still are affected by it. Yeah, and then the, the whole, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's a definition of rumination. Dark is the heart that wanders. Yeah. So if we're going through the five stages of grief, we go to track 12, our time in the universe. Okay, I like this song. I do a lot. I just don't know how we got here. And I think that's my biggest critique. Another musical WTF. But so, I like it. I do like it. Yeah, yeah, I think we're all in agreement that it's a great song. The thing here is that it's a full-fledged rock song. It's it's heavier, it's faster. Oh, but it's got more than that. Because, first of all, I believe this is the place where the hurdy-gurdy makes an entrance. It I does. think, um, uh, was it Brian, the uh, the producer? He steps in with the, with the hurdy-gurdy, and it, it kind of gives it, and I'm not saying the hurdy-gurdy, it, it gives it a Middle Eastern uh, feel almost at certain times, just the way the hurdy gurdy contrasts with some of the other instruments, and it is just that that Middle Eastern feel that I interpreted that made this this track feel, uh, you know, miles and miles away, thousands of miles, let's say. Well, and also, I mean, even lyrically, it's completely out of place too. I feel like this is definitely more positive, a brighter side, and it's uh, it is acceptance that yeah. that it fits within the theme. The problem is. Cool. This step to acceptance really had nothing in between. It was like one day you woke up and boom, you're good. You, you're already at that place that makes you feel happy. And that just doesn't jive with me. That idea just doesn't work for if, me. It's, it's not something that can be this quick, especially going from circling where you're stuck in a loop of, of going down the drain to wake up the next morning and being able to go, all right, breathing beneath the miles of earth and sky and in sunlight, I will appear before your eyes. So don't worry on what tomorrow holds for you. I'll be waiting at the end of the road you choose. The this... end of every road you choose. That's, oh, that's devotion. Every road. There we go. He has completely 180'd on this 
status of relationship he was building up. He is now more in denial than in acceptance. This is just completely being a lovelorn puppy in so many ways. Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, there's still the whole I'll be there for you idea. It's like, well, we're friends now. I don't know. That's not, it's not necessarily being a lovelorn if you can take that and, and, and own it, I guess. I will. If, if there is, there are ways you can certainly be a sap, but I, I don't know. I find this a little bit more um, sincere. I mean, yeah. I just think that the structure of this song, the 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 way it's conveyed, the instrumentation, all of it kind of lends itself to a more positive air. That while not not all the songs were dark and depressing, most of them were pretty blue. They were pretty kind of. You know, sad. Yeah, but at and, least this time we don't have a disparity. It matches, everything jives. The message yeah. is, is, is fairly positive, and, and, and so is the music. Yeah, it just seems like an odd way to end, end the track. I mean, I, I, the album, rather. I feel like, I guess, if this is true acceptance and moving on, then yeah, having this kind of vibe makes sense. It just, I it agree with John. It was happy. There was no bittersweet nature, which I think would have been more realistic. I don't know that it needed a bittersweet. I just feel like it needed another track to kind of... It feels like we jumped the shark a little bit. Exactly. It just there was something missing narratively. And that said, I mean the narrative had been kind of loose and scattered the whole album with just a kind of strong theme tying it together. So well, let me just it's read. Kind of hard. Let to me say. just read the very very end here. Uh, it's what it will be. It's what it will be. Because it's our time in the universe. Well, I don't mind if we're blessed or cursed. Yeah, it's our time in the universe. Yours and mine. Very mutual. Yeah. Um, that's that level of acceptance, at least. Or, well, you only hear it through his perspective, we assume. So, yeah. you know, it's obviously going to be a little bit slanted, but that's the idea. The perspective. Uh, who's going first for the wrap-up? This album does actually tell a very good story in a lot of ways. It does go through a very steady progression as far as as, as as an arc, as a theme goes. But it's kind of mundane when you get down to the actual like main character. And I think that's what it is. I love his voice. I will never stop loving Chris Cornell's voice if he keeps it. But the narrator loses his oomph. The actual progression loses his oomph after Josephine for me. It becomes really uh, just a lot of the same. And it really wasn't different beforehand. That's a big issue. I guess I, I <laughs> there's only so many times we can have an acoustic intro that gets bass and then percussion and then maybe piano. There's only so many times I can hear that. Take that, the fact that so, many, so much of the story doesn't really mesh up with what I felt the music was trying to convey. And it it just doesn't come across as the impact I, I think he was really going for. For that, it's it's really average. Like, there's really nothing that's going to promote it. Yet, I want to love this album. I really do. Because of the accessibility that's associated with it. Because of how just you can get into the music. At the end of the day, it's just every part of the music feels like you can get into it the same exact way. So for that, straight three. Straight three. Uh, okay. I mean, average depends, obviously, on your interpretation. You could come at this album, I think, through the theme, or you can come at it 
through the music. And if you're coming at it through the music, I think it will really help to have a folk or country background. Because if so, then listening to this album front to back, you're really not going to find faults. You're not going to find faults, at least as, as, as we may have cited them. Because in many ways, when you really think about it, I don't think I was really finding faults. It was more that I was finding some disparities, sure. And I was finding things that may have uh, stagnated or plateaued for me, sure. But faults at, at every step, he's a competent musician. He, he did a lot of this himself uh, with the aid of, of a good producer who I think really helped to um, to bring this album. It helped to give it some luster, perhaps, at least in terms of some of the mixing choices. But I, I just wish he'd gone a little bit further. I think that's my main problem, as I, I feel it from a musical standpoint. Everything should have just been inflated a little bit. Uh, maybe that's not what he wanted. Maybe... Considering the theme, he wanted everything to pared down a little bit. Maybe he doesn't see himself as, I mean, as anything particularly special. <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's maybe that's a harsh way to put it. But seriously, there's a, there's such this like, you could the way I said earlier on, you could listen to this album in the car when you're just driving across country. You feel like you could listen to it maybe in a department store. There's a radio friendly air. I think John's right in saying there's an accessibility to this that is a little bit endearing. So maybe that's what he was going for. But for me personally, I just, I felt that was keeping me from really falling into some of the deeper emotional elements. And that's where I'm going to talk about theme, because that's the other way, way you can come into this album if you're, if you're just reading lyrics, then a lot of this album, I believe, really does have a logic flow to it. I don't think there's any real holes into it. At best, or at worst, rather, there's some repeated themes. I think there's some tracks where uh, the little flip that he does toward the end where he seems to have come to a bit of acceptance and then he goes right back down the rabbit hole and then he comes back to acceptance again. I think that's pandering a little bit personally because we've just been through this so many times and we've seen so many albums with this exact theme in terms of like getting over things. I didn't think it was particularly necessary. I, I, I believe that's what he was trying to do though uh, through the theme itself and then there's just the 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 way the music matches up with it, and that's where my biggest problem is. I, I I feel that some of the music, it just was what it was, and I'm not sure a lot of thought went into specifically uh, how it would marry with the theme. It, it, I, I can't I can't reconcile that, especially toward the end of the album. Earlier on, it, it's a bit it jives a little bit better. It's that disparity that's gonna uh, hurt it a little bit for me, but but not much. I think. I think I'm actually even a little bit above John just because I I, in, I enjoy most of these tracks and it's it's not a matter of, of like really straining myself at every turn. I, I'm going to give this a benefit of the doubt. 3.25. All right. Um, I mean, off the bat, I'll say, as someone who grew up listening to Soundgarden and fell in love with Audio Slave when they came out and having been a Rage Against the Machine fan and knew, knowing it would be different, I still really enjoyed them. Um, I will say there are songs that were done with Audio Slave that fit this feel. I mean, Like a Stone by Audio Slave was very much slow and reflective and introspective. So upon further inspection of this album, I'm not surprised that he went this route. I just his previous solo work had also been in the vein of heavy, heavy rock, if not close to grunge. So I was very surprised that this didn't go that route when I picked it. Um, that said, I'm, I, I'm, I was initially disappointed with what I got based on the sound alone, 
but then fell into what it was and accepted it for what it was. You know, to, to judge it harshly just because it wasn't what I wanted is obviously unfair to it. Um, you know, but it's hard to deny when you're doing true folk or, or, or kind of a light rock, acoustic rock sound, unless you're introducing some interesting sound bites or elements, you're gonna have familiar sounds. That said, also his vocals, and we said this before, from track to track didn't have huge variation, but that's because it's got that Chris Cornell sound. The problem is without a big heavy rock band behind you belting out these vocals, it can fall a little flat or feel a little samey. Not because there's anything wrong with the way he's singing, but it's just the mix with what we have is a little more relaxed. That doesn't make it bad. I just feel like you know, I he could have diversified a little bit more on the record as a whole. What I said, inflated yeah. maybe certain things. But thematically, it's fairly strong. If you're looking for something that's sort of introspective, which is pretty much what this record is, I assume it's very personal. It sounds like it's very personal, even though you don't get the heavy-hitting emotional stuff in every track. It definitely seems like it's coming from a personal place. He's not just telling a story. And that has a strength to it. I think, for me, that... It's not just flat average for me because that puts it in the same place as bands like Katy Perry and 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 uh, One Republic, and I feel like there's more to this than that. Um, you know, he clearly has a talent for writing and making music. I just feel like I did get a little bored musically, you know, which is hard for me because, as we all know, since you've been listening for however long you've been listening to this podcast, I like lyrics and I like focus on vocals and I like emotionality but the here I really did want something else could just be growth who knows um, allow me to amend uh, my my inflated comment I think that's a poor word choice because that implies that he should just fill it fill it you know and it's just going to have air inside and it's going to seem this really really big and grand thing but I, I think the correct choice is more like amp it up you know yeah. really turn on the juice to a lot of these things all of his instincts throughout this album I believe are spot on he just doesn't go far enough with them yeah and who knows if that's just because he was doing singer songwriter stuff and didn't really want to go that next level maybe he felt it would be too close to his other projects which is completely possible um, all in all, though, I can't hurt it too much. It's obviously not a four. It's not at that next level. I feel like if maybe there was a little more to a lot of this where he did add that extra instrumentation or intricacies, it could get there. But it's I'm not rating it too harshly because there's, there's something here. It's a 3.6 for me. Not quite a, a 3.75. Not quite a 3.5. It's a little bit above that. He's hanging out in the, the mid to high three area, which is not a bad place to be. All in all, I do enjoy the record. I don't know how much I'll continue to listen to it. We'll see. I could be off on, on, uh, on this not knowing um, everything about what he's done in the past, but it almost seems like it was maybe his foray into this type of genre, considering what we know of Soundgarden and Audio Slave. It, it could have been uh, like just his, his decide, this, uh, decision to get into this type of music, and it, it comes across in certain areas perhaps as like a little bit beginner, but all things considered, it's pretty well done within that lens. I mean, so, the the stuff he the grunge stuff he did is not so different from this, other than it wasn't as heavy. I mean, songs like Black Hole Sun yeah, okay. are very soft and croony, but then the chorus comes in with heavy guitars and drums, but it's still very croony. But it is something that he's yeah he's he's used to having that that other stuff in the background, and it can reach it can shape his uh, 
uh, the style of music he's used to. Mm -hmm. He can shape it. It can it can hoist it up in certain ways. It's a it's a trick up his sleeve that he he doesn't have going into this, which is why I believe it may have been more of an experiment for him. Um, and I I still think it's very it's very competent every step of yeah, the way. No. And that's, there's there's that no moments, not an insult at all. There's no moments here where you're going, well, he doesn't know what he's doing. Like, yeah. that that doesn't that's not even a thought. Um, from here, I don't really have a smooth segue, so I'm just going to tell a little something to to the audience, and we'll get into our topic. Um, if you're listening now, when this uh, um, episode came out earlier this week, another episode of my other show, um, Crash Chords Autographs, came out, and I interviewed a pop artist who uh, recently released an EP. Um, her name is Claire Alice. I think it's Alice. It's A-L-Y-S, so pronounce it as you will. She is... Um, very talented soul singer who has uh, a strong pop sensibility and she also has a day job as a teacher and we talk a lot about that it's not a secret she's very upfront about how this is kind of a new new for her to explore um but i had asked her why she released an ep first if she had no previous releases there were no technically previous expectations or clamoring for a new album like she could take her time with it why not write a full album her, her response was essentially, and you can listen to the episode, but it was essentially, this is what she had, and she wanted to put something out. She wanted to get started. She wanted that first step. Um, but it leads me to think, you know, there are, we talked earlier about Schaefer's new EP, and EPs are pretty common now, especially in the digital era, when you can just put stuff out. My question that I pose is, is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Being quick to put out a shorter album, an EP, for the right price, um, for reference, also, Shape of the Dark Lord's EP is a five-song EP about sex on sale for four sixty-nine. Just thought I'd share. Oh, no, I appreciate all that. Um, um, it, it, interesting thing, and me and John are clamoring for a response here, so I'm just going to keep talking. Um, the EPs, first of all, the, you commented about the digital age. Yeah. I They were prevalent before that. Oh, of they, course, They've absolutely. been prevalent for a while now, specifically because of the reason that, that if an artist just wants to release stuff, if they just have stuff in their backlog that hasn't made it onto an album yet, they can just escape in the form of an EP, and there's less of the... There's less of the problems associated with, oh, let's say, what people like us might say. <laughs> because we, we spend so much time talking about album and arc and the experience of the chorus of maybe, you know, an average of 12 tracks or something like that. Uh, an EP is just, well, here's a few things we do. And it can be a really, really good way for beginner artists to start up their catalog by saying, here's a few things we do. You may expect some of this or, or uh, focuses on, on a few of these elements in, let's say, our first debut LP. It's also because ever since the 50s and 60s, and it happened beforehand, but it was really during the 60s that an album had to have themes, had to have something that was kind of underlying to connect all the music together, whether it was just you know, heartbreak stories or a true concept album, it became a, a, a running idea that an album, a full LP release was, you know, a magnum opus. It was, this is my stories that I'm going to tell. The EP tends to be just, I had this great idea and I don't know what to do with it. Well, yes, I know, but uh, like to go back to what I mentioned at the top of the show, I mean, Sex Rhymes, Schaefer's newest EP, they're all about sex. There's a theme. It's not 
I, it's not a narrative, but the, all the songs have to do with sex. And he wrote the EP that way, I guarantee, because well, I, unless I, he just found he had a bunch of songs about sex. I mean, to be fair, it's he, Schaefer. He, well, and <laughs> he had a song on Sick Passenger about sex. So it's not like he's never wrote about sex or attraction or sexuality. I'm waiting for the before. album called Inappropriate Touching or something like that <laughs> that has the rest, has this and all the other stuff that he puts together. I just listening to it was interesting. But I, yeah, you're right. There are themes associated with EPs from time to time, but it doesn't that that's sort of like the exception as opposed to the rule. Uh, I mean, when you want to talk about like music being released nowadays, a single song gets released all the time. True. I mean, that's how separate from an album and maybe it'll get thrown on an LP or even an EP later on, but a lot of artists just make a song well, there it is. That's that's even smaller than that EP. Well, I mean, from the Bandcamp era, I mean, an artist that me and Steve are quite fond of, Mr. Mike Furman, who I've interviewed for the podcast several times now, uh, both in print and in audio. Um, he's been, because he's a family man and has a, a young children and, and doesn't really get to sit and record a lot of music, he's been releasing songs one song at a time on his Bandcamp page. He thinks that he'll eventually put together a full album, but essentially he's pretty much bluntly put it, it takes me so long to get even one song recorded that I want to put it out so it's fresh in people's minds so people can get their hands on it. Which makes sense. I mean, if you have an audience already, I still think, though... You know, like in, in Claire's experience, and she's a brand new artist, the EP was not necessarily a necessity other than the urgency to want to put something out. Well, it's actually ironic in how we view the EP today as some kind of like bite-size uh, sampler of what an artist can do when really originally it was the opposite way around. Because if you're going back before the LP ever existed completely, then you're looking at the single era when everything was just singles because that's what a what a record could hold, or let's say it was an like old, four an old, songs, right? An old a single. Oh, a single. Well, let's say if you're just talking about an old '78, yeah, yeah, yeah maybe one song in there, a oh, couple right. on each side, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. But then the the EP, of course, which stands for Extended Play, which mm -hmm. meant you could go beyond that. And they actually did it by, like, narrowing the grooves. This is back in, like, 1948. I think it was done by, uh, by RCA Victor as an attempt to compete with Columbia Records. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it was a way just to, like, offer people a little bit more. Maybe, like, the earliest um, uh, vision of what an LP was. The idea that, well, you, you could release... Uh, extended works or, or works that might flow together, but it was still just intended to be a, a wider sampler and that they wanted to, to, to search, um, if they wanted to hone in on, on like uh, the experience from beginning to end, well, they could do that. Jazz was really uh, keen to hone in on that, especially in the 50s. Um, and then finally, they were just like, well, if we're going to do this, we might as well go with whole nine yards. And then the vinyls came around and vinyls really... Uh, push the LP where you could obviously play at 33 RPM which was unbelievable at the time and um, LP of course standing for long play as yeah. opposed to extended but, play but the EP stuck so you know that sort of left this oddball little sampler where all of a sudden you have these three tiers the single which is just market ready you know stamp <laughs> and then the EP which is somewhere in the middle ground and then the LP which is what everyone started really really looking at because uh, and rock was actually late to catch on to this jazz was a little bit quicker in saying like alright well we're going to have the concept because jazz just, they love to ramble. They love to go on. Which is why you had all these really uh, epic like uh, albums around 1958, 1959 in the jazz community. Rock was still like, hey, I got a bunch of songs. I'll put them on an LP. Yeah. Um, and eventually when they caught on by the 60s, now all of a sudden the Beatles really trumped it on with having, all right, rock is going to be a, a, a setting for the LP. And the EP just got left in the background. Well, 
then it became the sampler. It became the go-to sampler. I think people were ready to even stop like releasing EPs for a while, or it was yeah. just like this giant question mark. Well, why even release an EP? What? What? You don't have enough songs. You're not <laughs> writing quick enough. But of course, artists back in the 60s and 70s, they're releasing LPs like there's nobody's business. You know, yeah. a lot, a lot. Um, a lot more frequently than they do today because today we yeah. incorporate so much more into the production process sure. and then the publicity the publicists have to do their thing and it's just all this hype now surrounds the release of an album which is why artists can take a really long time today to release their work which is why the EP I think is coming back full force uh, or at least has been for at least 10 years since the advent of the digital age and, and now EPs are like I think they're more preferable if, for instance, fans are really clamoring, well, which I've... doesn't go perhaps to your example, the first example you brought up, when there's not a fan clamoring or waiting, then why not just go for the LP? So it's not owned to that example, but it does really pertain to, uh, to artists who have a lot of stuff released already. Well, I think also it's it's interesting when, when you release multiple EPs as well. There are artists, and I rather always talk about indie artists that I want to promote on the show than major artists that everyone already knows ubiquitously like tribe one who is also a guest on my other show he all of his releases have been eps he's never not put out an ep all all of his releases thus far have been ep except for when he was part of malibu shark attack or is part of malibu shark attack that was a full album which was exciting for me as someone who has several eps from him um it just seems interesting to me but my, my what i guess the logic is and i could probably ask him i'm sure is He's writing and he's putting this stuff together and he's excited to get it out to the fans and it would take less time to produce an EP than to produce a full record because it's less stuff, which makes sense. Well, it's not always just less time. I mean, that's it's up to the artist and his inspiration and everything that goes into that about how fast you're going to get out an album. When we're talking about stuff like the 60s, and uh, bands releasing two or three albums in a year, full LP albums. And in a lot of ways, there was a a different kind of mentality than what's going on today because you had to record everything at once in so many ways. You get the band together, you get two, three, four takes, that's it. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't sound perfect, well, it doesn't matter. That's the version that's going to be used. That's That's your album piece. That song, that's it. You're done. Nowadays... Because there's so many different tools available, we're not doing live albums anymore as often. Or if it's a live album, it's live albums of previous works put together in a different way. We're hearing them for the first time. Remix albums, another example. We're hearing them differently for the first time. But a true LP or even EP or just a song that comes out, you get layers, you get tracks. There's no garage band style of get five band members together, play it that perfect time and then you're done you get to tinker with it for way too long in some cases that's why we use terms like overproduced yeah because well maybe they should have released this as an ep or a single separately from the album because they wouldn't have taken six months more to make that song it, well, I mean, it comes down to how you really just want to release your work anyway. Obviously, all these things are just standards now. Yeah. I mean, I you can go through the history like I did of, of like how this stuff actually started and how we came to where we are today. But now it's just a question of like, oh, well, either you're going to do an LP or you're going to do an EP. Or <laughs> like, you're going to do a magnum a, opus or whatever. That's kind of dull when you think about it, which is why I kind of respect like the fact that, all right, well, Malibu Shark Attack, just do EPs. That's pretty crazy. I mean, if that's all... 
if that's the way they see their work in terms of like that particular length, that's okay. There shouldn't be any particular kind of taboo on it. But certainly there are also people who, who go the whole nine yards and then treat their EP as a concept. One of my favorite EPs, for instance, really kind of goes against what the whole EP is. If you were going to view it as like the sampler or the excess or the stuff that has been left over and then subsequently refined, well, that's not what the tame is. The tame by the Decemberists is one of my favorite EPs ever because it essentially is a concept EP. The whole entire thing is is a solid block. It, it consists of like maybe five little inner tracks, but it, they all flow together. They're all part of the same thing. There's really no break between between these tracks. They're broken up like many other things that the December, well, other things that December's have done, like for instance, the island off of the Crane Wife, you know, is like three tracks, but they're all linked together. Um, there are also various things off of their concept. LP, Hazards of Love, which flow together. But the, the Tane, which is an EP, is structured very similarly. And it's pretty awesome because it's a bite size. Um, by, I shouldn't say the word bite size. It's 30 minutes, right? In other words, it is a lot shorter than what you would expect from an LP. But that's what they needed. That's what they required to serve this, what I think is absolutely a magnum opus. Well, to also address something that John had mentioned before about just putting out stuff and using EP as another avenue. I mean, I know artists who, when presented with that or working on something so long that they can't get out, don't go for an EP. They just release a different album instead, yeah. which has happened. Um, I'll continue to dig through my plethora of relation to nerdcore. <laughs> Michael Kill, when I interviewed him as one of my early interviews for, for autographs, he talked about his newest album, The Snuggle is Real, which had just come out. But that wasn't actually the album he'd been working on. The album he'd been working on featured a song called Martyr. I can't remember the name of the album off the top of my head, but he was so dragged and buried in that album trying to write it and not being able to finish it. He said, all right, I need to do something else that's not this concept album and jumped into a new album and wrote that and released that instead mm. in much shorter time. I think six months, he said, he wrote and produced and made everything, which is crazy. There's also the fact, I mean, look at the parallels with other forms of entertainment, such as television shows. You have your television shows, which are very episodic, very little bite-sized storylines. A lot of cartoons do this. Uh, a lot of sitcoms do something like this, where you just get one story, and yes, there'll be overarching themes and stuff like that, and there will be progression of characters. But you watch an episode of something like Big Bang Theory or, or a sitcom like that, you will have a whole story in one little bite-sized piece, Boom, there you go. There's your EP kind of an idea. And then there's the ones that... I really think that's break. less comparable because you can't really... You, you can't you can't compare the structure of, 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 a, of a show, for instance, to the structure of an album necessarily. Yes, like in that case, every, everything is a chapter. No matter what, it, a, a track could be a chapter and, and an episode is essentially a chapter. But how long does a chapter have to be? There are books that where there's like three chapters across the entire novel, which might be up to 400 words, and there's just three chapters, or there could be 51 chapters. It doesn't make a difference. Just however you you visualize the scene work, however slow or long it needs to take for you. Um, but it, since you brought up cartoons, I will say that there is a, a propensity, especially amongst television, um, to relay stuff in the same standardized format. An episode is half an hour, right? Well, right. unless it's a drama, it'll be an hour. I kind of like the, how uh, they messed with that, you know, in, in the Adult Swim era and said, well, we can have 15-minute slots now. It'll really throw off your DVR. Yeah. Actually, that but was one of the most... Early DVRs. That was one of the most interesting things. They decided that it's just going to be something you enjoy for a specific amount of time. Yeah. Well, and it doesn't have to conform. You don't have to drag it out or something like that. And it made a lot of sense, considering that, like, traditional cartoons were shorts of approximately that length anyway. So it kind or, of or returned even to that. Sherlock, which is a two-hour-long... 
three episodes per season BBC British drama that is really it's they try to get a full season almost in a single episode as far as content is concerned BBC everything's a little bit longer or a little bit different but also back to the cartoon thing it's coming back again like I started watching cartoon called Steven Universe and those episodes are 11 minute chunks which I was surprised by because most cartoons are about 25 minutes now per episode Adventure turns the same way or two 15 minute episodes and so this was oddly very uh, 11 or 12 minutes and I just I thought that was interesting but what's curious is a lot of these ideas are still actually expanding upon that like if one of my favorite cartoons so I haven't been kept keeping up on it Adventure Time is 10 12 minute episodes mm-hmm. but they all have 62 episodes in a season right exactly. like it gets ridiculous and there's a story arc throughout this whole little thing it's it's really trippy to try to follow them along too. To reel this back a little bit though, I, I, I do think I mean obviously we're now discussing the issue of like our issue with standards and in general. And uh we've we've had this discussion in various other forms before where we generally come to the conclusion at the end of the day, well standards are should be meaningless and you should do things for the length of that what you feel your art should should be, well that's what it should be. I do wanna give standards some some olive branch though, because it it's good for time management. I think for your own time management, if you know exactly how long an episode is of of anything, or how long a a album will be generally on average, you can you can delineate your time fairly well. It also helps the fact that a person can. It, it's hard to go through a four hour movie. It's yeah. hard to go through an hour and a half album in one sitting. It's just by shrinking it down a little bit, 45 minutes for an album, two hours for a movie. It, it holds a person's attention in a much easier way because w- it's something that we can just sit and enjoy that way. I will admit that EPs being shorter have all, or EPs being a shorter arc of music has allowed me to enjoy sex rhymes multiple times on one commute, which is fun. (laughs) (laughs) And I I will actually say that by the flip side, there are not many EPs that I do listen to front to back because, going back to the original idea of what it is, it is such a sampler that a lot of times I just want to hear a particular song off an EP and I'll listen to that song. Albums are the kind of things I I am more inclined to always listen to them beginning to end. Usually, not always, but but, um, with EPs, it... I don't know. It just doesn't come up a lot. I, I go to that particular song, these great particular tracks on an EP. Unless it's the Tame. The, the Tame, of course. Right. The, the big exception. Always. Yeah, so. half-hour EP. Yeah. <laughs> All uh, right. That's 20 minutes, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> um, today, in wrapping up the show, I'm going to steal Steve's thunder. Um, so, we recently had a uh, listener comment, but it was not on the site, it was not via email, it was not on Facebook, it was on Twitter. So I don't get to read my spam. You don't get to I read my spam. I had a spam ready. I have to use it next week. So, I'm going to actually pull up his Twitter, Twitter profile so I can read um, his handle and his name on Twitter, which is hilarious. So, Church of Rientology asks... <laughs> okay, and, oh, wait, wait, wait. Oh, awesome. So Church of Rientology, I'm guessing he, he found us through uh, the Ice Cream Social podcast um, just because. It, that seems like an atheist uh, screen, uh, username if I've ever heard one. <laughs> and it has his actual name, the Ryan Lehu. It's at the Ryan Lehu, L-E-H-U-E. Um, and he asks at Crash Chords Web, are you guys going to do an episode on the new Steam Power Giraffe album, Vice Quadrant? Well... I responded to him cleverly saying, no spoilers, but it's definitely on our radar, which he responded, 
delightful to hear. I really enjoyed the episode that you did on their last two albums. Well, John would like to elaborate a little bit as to why we haven't done it. It is a pick that John, we will spoil a bit, that John wants to pick in the nearish future. So we talked about it a few times. I mean, I talked about it a few times because it's Steam Power Draft and I'm still listening to all the work almost on a weekly basis. I saw two things that really struck out for me on this album. One is it's difficult to get lyrics and I will not do this album until I have full lyrics on it that I know are completely concrete, which is why I'm waiting and, for the physical copy to show up. You will sit and, and transcribe them if you have to. It's 32 pages booklet. I ordered, I'm waiting okay. for the booklet to come. It's All 32 right. pages. There's a reason it's 32 pages. That's the other problem. It's 28 tracks, two CDs, over an hour and a half. It's busy time of year for us as podcasters outside of doing the podcast. I'm working six days a week. Matt's doing pickup work. Steve's got his job. There's a lot going on that we're dealing with, and it's going to be a hard thing for us to tackle until Christmas season slows down. It's going to be my first pick of next year, but it's going to be pushed off to next year. (laughs) I'm promising that right now. Instead... I found something uh, that we haven't really tackled in a while, and that is hip-hop. And, and It's not completely true. We did Stereotypes by, pretty Black by Violin, which was hip-hop. Was, uh, this is a different type three of Three episodes ago. Okay. This is a, a duo that kind of was under the radar for me, because I don't really... It's been a while since I've delved, delved into rap and hip-hop. They premiered number one, sold 150,000 albums in the first year, recorded this album on tour with six different producers. That perked my interest. But the big thing was the actual concept of the album itself. The album is called Blurry Face, and it is cited that this album is about the insecurities of people. And that is a very interesting concept. Hmm. So the album Blurry Face was... Is produced by, written by, and starring 21 Pilots, a multi-time self-published. This is only their second studio release with a production company, but they've been around for the past five years or so. And just sampling a few of the songs, I'm very curious. This seems like it might be another one of those oddball uh, sort of hip-hop combination albums because of... The production, the doing it on tour, having so many different inputs put in there. It seems like this might be one of those like interesting pieces we really you get know, to we've actually, yeah. We still haven't tackled like just a pure, you know. We can't tap, tackle hip-hop. pure hip-hop because what everything that piques my interest is rock hip-hop or something that's really... That's not true. I mean, it, it's not that long ago that we did The Heist. I mean, that was only a year ago, right? But it wasn't just... We're either about the fusions or we're about, like, balls to the wall in one thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. And I'm okay with that. I'm sorry that we're delving into some of, like, the really, you know, weird stuff. Cutting edge, supposedly. You want to do mainstream? Well, that'll be determined next week, all right? I'll, I'll find <laughs> mainstream think, if you want to do mainstream. I think Steve is still pushing to do uh, Miley Cyrus's album, so that's why he wants mainstream. Naturally. Obviously. Naturally. Right. Maybe Push Taylor. For the end I don't of know. Maybe Justin. We'll yeah. do one of those, right? Steve, you're going to pick one of those, Steve? We'll see. He we'll picked see. the last pop album, Shawn Mendes. That's so. right. I, uh, I, I can be young every once in a while. Thank you. <laughs> On that Says note. the youngest guy with the oldest soul. <laughs> that is true. All right, guys. That's it for this week. Remember, music is life. And, and life, life is, is good. good. 
If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.